Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. And my name's Justin. For today's episode, uh, it was Justin's choice. So Justin, take us through your film selection today. I picked Shiva Baby. This is a film that you had kind of recommended, so that's kind of what put the idea in my head, and I I selected it, but it's something I wanted to see. So I was aware of the film, sort of aware of what the film was about. Uh, What about you? Yeah, so wait, does I gotta ask, does does this count as one of mine? Because I did kind of recommend it to you, and here we are discussing it, so. Uh, No, I don't think so. I think this is... This counts as my pick. Okay. If I recommended a film to you and then you were given the option to pick the film for that episode and you picked that film, I think that is your pick. You've recommended many films to me over the years. If I pick them, does that somehow not qualify as my pick? (laughs) (laughs) All fair points. (laughs) I don't know. We're, We're making this up as we go, I think. I had actually seen Shiva Baby early in 2022. It was was on my radar, but I didn't necessarily know what to expect. You know, I just kind of turned it on with my wife. To this day, I remember the disgusted, stressed, anxious looks on her face. I distinctly recall her after we finished our initial viewing saying, that was great. I never want to watch it again. And once you know it, she sat there and she suffered through it one more time. I was delighted to see that most of the reactions remained the same. That's good to hear. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen Shiva Baby... Definitely recommend watching it before listening to this podcast, because we are probably going to dive into some heavy spoilers. Justin, tell us what Shiva Baby is all about. I think it's really great to like support females, particularly um, female entrepreneurs. Cool. In the future. <laughs> great. Yeah. Awesome. Danielle! Don't Danielle! Please don't yell. Moira's here and her daughter Stephanie. Jessica. Whatever. You should really talk to her, you know? No. It's just a job. Darling! Hi, Mom. I'm so sorry for your loss. No funny business with Maya. Thank you. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. You can't just, like, show up to, like, the after party for a shiva and like reap the benefits of the buffet. She lost so much weight. Yeah. You think she has an eating disorder? I was trying to major again. Feminism isn't exactly what I call a career. It's not my career, it's a lens. Max worked for your father years ago. 
Really? Just try to behave yourself today. I'm not gonna blow him in the bathroom. Why do you keep looking over there? Hi, I'm Kim Beckett. I don't think she's pretty. Malibu Barbie is not pretty. I mean, she's just like basic. You are such a good kid. Are you on drugs? No, just kidding. <laughs> Is she okay? I already have a plan and a path, so... So you just study and uh, don't eat and go out with your beautiful friends. Is that it? Is that your life? Yeah. Oh. Yes, that's my life. Wow, lucky you. Mom, 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 mom. Who died? Shiva Baby, written and directed by Emma Seligman. The film follows uh, Danielle, played by Rachel Sennett. She goes to a Shiva. The film is largely about the anxieties of social interactions with family that she doesn't really see that often. And then also this pressure to avoid her ex-girlfriend. The sort of anxiety of the film and of the character intensifies when she sees that her, her sugar daddy is also at the Shiva and learns that he has a wife and that he has a, a newborn daughter. And I think a big part of the film is just the drama and the humor that come from her trying to keep secrets and try to keep these different parts of her life separate from one another. I'll give a little bit of background information and then Joe, you can let me know if I miss anything important. The life of this film started as a short film. Eight minute short film from 2018 was the director's thesis film at NYU Tisch School of the Arts and actually premiered at South by Southwest Film Festival. I was encouraged by my professor, uh, Yamana Demisi, to just do something I knew in a world I understood because I felt like I was one of many college students going into their senior year who wanted to go out with a bang and do like a period piece or like, you know, like a sci-fi movie or whatever. And I I submitted a draft of my version of that to him and he was like, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> um, so then I was like, okay, well, the the most e the, e the community and the people that are easiest for me to write are are my versions of my family members, uh, Jews, Ashkenazi reform Jews. Um, so I was like, it'll be at a family function um, and also one location. She did mention that she kind of designed the film to function as a proof of concept for a feature film. That was always the intention. The film quickly evolved to a feature. They raised $200,000 from multiple investors and shot over the course of 16 days. We reached out to everyone we know, people who have not invested in film before, and we, we just convinced them. Um, and then once we got our most experienced EP, um, our only experience, one of two experienced EPs, uh, Rhiannon, um, Rhiannon Jones, who's incredible. Then we could go back to like the friends of friends of family friends that we all like connected with being like, so this real producer wants to help us. Like, do you want to help us? And so it ended up just being a huge collection of uh, not small amounts of money, but small investments, you know, by film standards, even indie film standards. So, and Rachel was a huge part of that process. It was her me and our three producers, Lizzie, Katie, and Kieran, all searching high and low for $5,000, for $10,000, for $50,000. Like it just depended. Um, and it was, it ended up just being a lot of people. 
Joe, is there anything you found interesting you think is important to mention before we get started here? Maria Roosh, who was the cinematographer on this film, kind of talked about when she came aboard and, you know, you kind of talked about the raising $200,000 as Emma was like pulling the film together, just, okay, getting the actors involved, but you don't have any money, then getting the crew involved but needing to work around the actors. And it it was just a really interesting insight into the filmmaking process. Like many low-budget independent features, we're still like kind of looking for financing. um, And you kind of have to create this moving train, um, even though you're building the train as you go and, you know, trying to get the pieces to come together um, all at once. Uh, and it's a very difficult process. So, you know, she was talking to department heads, even though she didn't necessarily have the money in place, but she's talking to financers, even though there's not like necessarily that much cast in place. She's talking to cast, even though the money is not in place. And that's I think really common to the, to the process of making um, a movie of this size. Uh, and it's, it's a testament to, to Emma and the, and the producers kind of, um, strong will that that it all came together so we'll kind of talk about that and i'll touch on that a little bit later in the episode i think it would also be worth noting that shiva baby the feature was the winner of the 2021 independent spirit award john cassavetti award so for reference that's an award presented to a creative team or film that was budgeted at less than five hundred thousand dollars you know it was it definitely in my opinion was very deserving it It felt like a very small independent film, but it definitely demonstrated a lot of talent from everybody involved. Since we're talking about the budget, I think this is one of these films where my taste in films starts to sort of show itself. I think we both kind of sometimes look at what other people are saying about these films and a lot of the complaints or comments more from people who this is just not for them or they didn't necessarily like it is that it feels small. They like films that are more than just people talking in one location. And you and I know as filmmakers, typically that is a decision to set it in one majority, one location and, you know, focus a lot on just people standing around talking is usually a budgetary decision, not always. But I think this is where my taste comes out is this is the stuff I love. We talk about the budget and I think what they were able to accomplish with this budget. But for me, this is, I think, what filmmaking is about, is films like this and a bigger budget or having more locations or something, that stuff doesn't necessarily interest me. So we talk about this as a low budget film, but at the same time, it's like, it is low budget. We, I think we have to acknowledge that, but it's also, it works despite that and because of that. And I love it because not what they were able to accomplish with that low budget, but I love it just because it, it is what it is kind of thing. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? I think that uh, people hear the term low budget, they instantly think cheap or amateur. And this is anything but. I know we're going to dive more into the technical pieces, and I, I'm going to kind of be jumping around in moments from the film that I, I remember, and we're going to kind of maybe talk about some of this out of order. But there's a scene where Danielle goes outside, and it's like one of the rare scenes where she's 
kind of alone and she's like kind of finding after a whole bunch of chaos she's trying to find like that peace and quiet she encounters maya who's her ex hey are you are you okay I'm like, <laughs> what? Nothing. What? What is it? What? It's literally nothing, okay? Well, you're laughing, so what's so fucking funny? Nothing's fucking funny. Nothing's funny. They just have this conversation and they interact outside the house. But there are things that Molly Gordon, who plays Maya, does in that scene that to me shows a lot of focus on character and somebody just, whether it be the direction itself or the actor making a decision, just the way that she moves her hair and the way that she kind of looks sort of down and then up at Danielle. The film is filled with like these great moments of an actor kind of embracing what the character would do or how they would react. I just think it's phenomenal. And whether it be an acting choice or something that Emma gave the direction to, Another one of those things is, I, I mean, I think people who this movie just didn't work for them is probably characterization, but it's also they didn't feel like the performances necessarily worked. I saw that as a talking point for people who didn't like it. I just thought this film is just beautifully performed throughout the whole thing. And, and I can't think of a single actor who did anything that didn't feel completely authentic. That's just another one of those things that I love. And that emphasis on that character and those performances over maybe... And there are certainly some flashy moments filmmaking wise in the film, but for the most part, you just let the actors bring those characters to life and you don't need to supplement that with a lot of filmmaking flash. Is there like a performance or an actor that kind of stood out for you in that regard? I would say Rachel Sennett as Danielle. Molly Gordon as Maya, those two and, and their relationship together, I mean, is ultimately the backbone of the film. And it starts in just this crazy place and evolves to this completely other thing. And I think just the two of them, they just work so well together. Just the reaction shots of them to whatever the other person is saying. I mean, I think that's more evident with Maya. When it comes to movies, I'm sometimes accused of not having a sense of humor because I don't find most comedies funny. But this this film made me laugh the way I don't typically laugh at movies. I'm actually kind of glad to hear you say that because I've seen this twice now. One of my big takeaways the first time I'd watched it was how well I think the comedy worked. It takes a, a really, really talented director to weave all of these different elements together. And I think that Shiva Baby kind of shows that because it's incredibly tense, it's incredibly uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's it has like these moments of brevity and it's very funny. And I think that this all just kind of weaves together really well. 
you know, when we're talking about the comedy, it's it has something I think this is a film that's not going to work for everybody. But I think and I, it's hard to even describe what is funny to me because there are those moments that are clear jokes. But then there are those moments where it's just Rachel and Max staring at each other. So Danielle, the character, is staring first and... Max will kind of realize she's staring and they're both staring at each other. And just that moment where they're staring at each other can be like really funny in this movie. It doesn't sound that way, me describing it. But I think if you experience the film and it's clicking with you, it's hard not to just get something out of those moments. I don't know. So Max does play the sugar daddy. Max is married to and has a child with Kim. One of the things that I think works so well about the film is it's uncomfortable enough enough that this person that you're kind of secretly having this relationship with shows up at this shiva that you're already, you know, uncomfortable being there. Emma does a great job of escalating the tension and the discomfort by all of a sudden Kim and the child show up. So your mom was watching her. I know. She got sick. What the fuck? You want the baby getting sick? No. This is why we need a new sitter. Okay, fine. Well, I'll find a new sitter. When we talk about like the humor of it, I think that the humor that you're referencing as far as like those looks and the reactions go, I think that there's some kind of uncomfortable like humor um, that Polly Draper, who plays Debbie, Danielle's mother, you know, kind of that cringe embarrassment comedy. How did Danielle's parents play for you? I liked her parents. I do think her mother gets probably a little bit more attention. Just an observation, not a, not necessarily a complaint. I found them funny. I think most of the comedy with the mother happens when she's specifically interacting with Danielle. Mm-hmm. What's, I think, great about it and why it's obviously not going to be everybody's cup of tea is the jokes aren't delivered like jokes. There's that scene in which Danielle and her parents are having that conversation with Max right after they first interact at the Shiva. Hi. Uh, Joel, is your father? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you kids know each other? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we met uh, a really long time ago. No kidding, how? Uh, at the... Uh, um, at the, the um, Beth, Beth Torah, Israel. Beth Israel, Israel right. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you, you met at Shul? Yeah, I was volunteering for... The children. What children? Really, I can't even get you to go to services it's with the me. Thing, it's um, you can you can volunteer for the the Jewish children. It's it's like uh-huh. an organization. Aren't you too busy? I mean, like with school and then doing the babysitting and everything. Oh wow, you babysit. How often do you do that? Just you know, whenever they need me. They don't give you a schedule. No. No schedule. No schedule, Mom. Huh. Well, do you enjoy it? The parents' yeah, perspective. They think they're meeting for the first time. So. In that scene, the parents are saying funny things, but they're not funny because they're delivered like jokes. The actors are really trying to make their daughter look as good as possible to this other person. But the problem with that scene is everything they say contradicts what Danielle specifically told this guy in the first place. Mm -hmm. So every time the parents try to make Danielle look good, they're inadvertently making her look even worse. And they don't realize that. The actors aren't playing this like, oh, I'm in a comedy right now and I'm delivering a joke. They're just being who these characters would be. And the brilliance of the film is that these scenarios have been constructed 
that it's going to be inherently funny if you're into this type of humor. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if there was really anything that stood out to me as like, oh, this is a joke. It's funny because it's in the context of the situation in which the characters are currently in. I think that the only scene or sequence that I really do feel is played for laughs. Actually, there's two moments when Danielle and Maya are walking the old lady to her car and the discussion about how she lost her license. Do you need help? Oh, no. Thanks, girl. Do you want me to pull out for you? You drive a car? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good driver. Oh, thank you. No. All right. Be safe. Wait, doesn't she have an expired license? Yeah, they took it away. She's not supposed to. Whatever. I, I kind of felt like that one was more of the on-the-nose humor versus the situational humor. So... I guess I'll I'll kind of touch on the ending a little bit where Danielle's father, Joel, he's a very good Samaritan and he's offering to give everybody a ride home. It's this whole, well, you don't live that far or, you know, we're going that way. Hey, aren't we giving you two a a lift? Three? Um, No, no, it's 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 okay. We're uh, we're getting a car, so I really, thank you. Come on, I got the Uber that's Uber all Let's go. Joel, they got a car. We got Maureen. But he's right around the corner. Phone, he's my a... phone just... <sighs> okay, phone is my phone. Okay, where is it? Just go get somewhere in here. Okay, that's very specific. I'm... It's somewhere in there. Like... Honestly, it, you guys have so many people between all of you, and, and we would have to strap her in and all of those things. So... When we were all her age, there was no straps, there was no, there was no carriers. Everybody all survived. Come with us. Oh, for the love of God. I'm getting in the car. Sure. And he kind of overpacks the van. To me, I thought it still worked, but I did feel like that scene and that like sequence and how that plays out felt more of that traditional humor. I'm actually curious, as I rewatched it and knowing that you and I were going to talk about this, I actually really want to know your thoughts on that scene, because if there's a comedy scene in this movie that I don't think will have worked for Justin, this is it. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I guess I agree. It feels more traditional in the sense that it feels a little contrived. You know, it wasn't obvious the whole film that this is where it's going, but there's a certain point where it's like, oh, of course, this is what was going to happen. And the scene didn't work for me on a comedic level. I don't think I laughed at that scene. That scene, I think, still works because it's the worst possible scenario to be in in that moment. Not only is she now stuck in this even smaller space with Max, but now she's also stuck in that space with his wife, who at this point is aware that something is going on, and a crying baby, and then all these other characters. Seatbelts on. All right. First stop will be Maureen. Oh, thank you. So it's like the worst possible situation, yet because 
we've gotten to this place with Maya, it feels right. And it's for me, it's this moment where being with the right person can make any nightmare situation just a little bit more tolerable. And that being the point of the scene for me, and it works in that way, it doesn't necessarily work for me on a comedic level. Since we're talking about the ending, one of the few complaints I have of the film is kind of around the same area. And and it's when Maya and Danielle walk the woman to her car, and then they're walking back to the house. And Maya says, like, well, why, why have you been doing this? Why has she been sleeping with people for money? Can I ask you something? What? Um, why do you do it? No, I'm not judging. I'm not judging. I mean, I you just, clearly I, are. No, I'm not. I just don't, I don't know anything about it. I wanted it, so. money, and it was easy. Well, is it? Yeah, sometimes. It felt nice to, like, have power and be, like, appreciated. It's the moment that I didn't care for the most, I think. Because, you know, for other people, maybe it's important to explain it, you know, especially since she comes from clearly a very privileged background and she doesn't need the money. Maybe it is important for people to get it in order to not hate the character or, you know, to sympathize or empathize with that character. But for me, that's I don't I don't need that. It felt a little too forced for me. And, I, I you know, I can empathize with that character. And I can get a sense of like why she's doing it through her actions. I don't need her to, to say specifically why. I think you and I are going to differ on this a little bit because, and I totally get where you're coming from. It, it does feel a little like on the nose as far as like, hey, here's an exposition of, of the why. But to me, it worked to an extent because... As the film kind of goes on, a little bit more of Danielle and Maya's relationship kind of is revealed. There's like things hinted at, and you can kind of see that Maya's still got this connection and she still has those feelings. So while it does feel on the nose and a little exposition-y, I was maybe a little bit more forgiving, and I think maybe it worked a little bit more for me because looking at Maya as somebody who still has those feelings and by the end of it, it kind of gives the impression that she's going to get back together with Danielle or get together with Danielle. It did feel like a moment or an element that Maya would want to know to kind of understand this person that she's connecting with. I can understand that. I think my issue is maybe just the way it happens or the moment it happens. It, it just feels, here's what it boils down to. What you're saying is absolutely correct. I get that. But in the moment, if I feel like the line of dialogue or the question is for the audience and not necessarily for the character, that's where it turns for me. And that's a, a very sort of subjective thing. You know, whether I personally get the impression that it's for the audience or not. If I do, it bothers me. If, you know, maybe on another viewing, I would completely flip my opinion on this. I don't know. I think that's what it comes down to for me. Is in that moment, it felt like this is for the audience. Let me pose this hypothetical to you. If that scene or that discussion happened any other way, rather than this like walk to and from a car, and if it was just another one of those outside the house, them just having like a moment of solitude together, and that's how it played out, would you think of it any differently? 
Yeah, I think I would. I can certainly understand why for Maya, who throughout that entire Shiva has been just struggling and doing everything she possibly can to get Danielle's attention. And then they finally have this moment where they kiss and everything seems great. And then something gets in a way of that, why she would want answers. I think maybe also part of it feels like it's happening at a point where the film is wrapping up. You can feel it, mm. feel the film closing. And it's like this conversation happens in this moment where it's trying to tie up all these loose ends. Not that this film has a lot of loose ends, but I yeah. mean, tie up whatever potentially loose ends there are. So maybe it's the timing of the conversation as well that just gives me that impression. I'm starting to change my mind on it because I certainly agree with you that it's justified for the character, but I had a gut feeling when I saw it and my gut feeling is, was more powerful in that moment. And I think that you touch on something else that I did feel like it was kind of racing to the end. For the rest of the film being very well paced, the way that that scene kind of plays it does feel like, okay, we have a movie we have to get to the end of. This is how we're going to do it. I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. I just want to briefly give my overall thoughts on the story. I think the brilliance of this film really is the the way it can visually represent the horror, the anxiety of social interactions with family members. And all of the little details that go into that, the idea that all of the family members are basically having the same conversation over and over. It's always just about what's next. What's the future look like? School, work, the job. So any boyfriends? Um, no, not yet. Or right now. She's so excited about graduating. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, uh, I have like some exams left and then um, I have some interviews that I'm going to really? do. Really? You didn't tell me. Where? I'm, well, I don't think you know the places. Do you still make those little videos? I always thought those were so fun. I haven't done one in a while. So, acting is still your goal. No, it's like comedy, stand-up. Um, what was your major again, sweetie? No, no, she doesn't have a major, Mom. And uh, just the little things about, like, picking at how people look or the mistakes people make. The obvious one is the pronunciation of arugula. Ah, uh, you know what I love? Mm. Arugula. Ooh. Oh, it's arugula, not arugula. That's what she said. I, no, that's not what she said. She said arugula. And you need your hearing checked. So arugula. <laughs> like, the fact that that, would, that has to be said. To me, it's clearly coming from a very personal place. Like something like this has happened to to the people who are making this film. Everybody's focused on her weight and whether she's eating. Look at this one. Is she not eating? Uh, right. How much she weigh? How much she weigh? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I just. Oh. <laughs> Come on. Do you want me to get out of scale? You're so funny. Look at this punum. It just does a really good job of putting an emotion and conveying an emotion that is tied to, to all these things. One of the other elements that really kind of jumped out for me is just the lying. And to me, one of the things that I, I really kind of appreciated was how those lies kind of changed based off of the discussions or who was having the discussions. And I know that this isn't an accurate statement, but it felt like Every time Danielle was interacting with her mother, the mother was surprised by whatever it was that Danielle had said or the information that Danielle had revealed to the mother. And there's, you're, you're laughing right now. So clearly you found that comedic. 
Well, yeah, yeah. To me, there's something interesting about these characters or these individuals kind of hiding certain elements or aspects of themselves from their family due to judgment, or Danielle's parents still pay for a lot of her stuff, just the consequences and repercussions. I think of the scene in which Danielle and Maya are first talking at the Shiva and the lies that Danielle tells in that scene, where it's not even like, there's certainly lies to make herself look better, but they're not big lies. You know, they're not lies like, you know, her telling the Max character that she's going to grad school or, or she's, you know, she's hiding the fact that she's basically a babysitter to make her look better or to give this person some sort of impression of who she is. But that scene with Maya, where she lies about being at the funeral or at the service. Were you even at the funeral? Yeah. Really? Of course I was. Yeah. Your dad was kind of like frazzled. I don't, um, he said you were running late. Okay, well, if he said that, then why did you ask? You can't and it's a lie that's so clearly, you're so clearly lying and so bad at it, but she just doubles down and she just keeps going. What was the, your favorite part of the service? Uh, the whole thing was beautiful. Interesting. You must just be so sad. You must be really grieving your friend Annie. Well, actually, our families are really close, you know? And there's really no reason to lie in that moment. You could be honest. Just very funny because she's just very bad at it. It's so obvious. And she's also choosing weird moments to lie. You know, you talk about the comedic elements, and you probably know where I'm going with this one, too. And it kind of comes from that Maya conversation where Maya's challenging Danielle of, well, how did you know this person that died? And Danielle gives this weird story about how they like played bridge. Uh, somebody <laughs> that Danielle's related to played bridge with the person. <laughs> she actually played bridge with my puppy. Bubby? Yeah. Okay, you've never met your grandma. Well, thank you for reminding me, Maya. All right. And then later on, so Danielle funny. asks her mother, you know, who died and- Mom, 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 mom. Who died? Abby. <laughs> and it's like yeah. this, how, how she just kind of lied into the truth somehow. And it was just, it, it's it's a great moment that I find just so funny. She used to play bridge with Bobby. Really? Yeah. We've kind of talked oh, a little bit about, and you know, we'll go into our thoughts, but you kind of touched on maybe some feelings that other viewers may not appreciate this film. Do you think between Danielle, you called her a sex worker before, I don't know that I'd go that far, but... I use that expression because through interviews, Emma has talked about how, you know, sex is being a big part of her work, and I'll get to that later, but also she used the expression sex worker. I think it's because she's clearly doing it for money. They throw around the sugar baby, sugar daddy vernacular, but she's also just doing it for money. All right, then I guess it's fair to say that Danielle's a sex worker. So do you think that maybe some of the struggles that maybe viewers might have with this film is the fact that Danielle maybe isn't the most relatable character and maybe like people like to internally think that they're maybe better than they truly are. The Danielle character is a sex worker who lies and she doesn't have her life together. <laughs> There's a lot of those things that it's like, I think people probably could relate to if they were honest with themselves, but maybe people just don't want to look at this as a true reflection of who they might be. 
I mean, to answer your question, I think the answer is yes. I think there's a lot going on. I will personally admit that I do relate to Danielle when you're talking to an uncle that you haven't seen in two years or you saw a year ago. What the hell are you supposed to talk about? And I've seen people say like, has this person never been to a family get together before? Why is she acting so weird? For me, it's like, what happened in, in that person's life that they're so comfortable talking to their extended family that way? See, that feels more weird to me than, mm -hmm. you know, the way she behaves. So to be honest, I relate, but I personally don't need to always relate. I can feel empathy for someone, you know, if the film is made well, and I think the characterization is detailed enough and specific enough, and the performance is good, I can empathize with that character, whether I relate to them or not. But I think a lot of people have an empathy problem. Then yeah, I think it's people thinking they're better than everyone else. Maybe you don't suffer from this specific issue, but I'm sure you have your own stuff that if someone else was looking at would judge you for. I, I don't know. I mean, then there's the other issue. I was looking at reviews where they accuse Danielle of being a terrible person. But I think it's interesting that everybody's so eager to attack Danielle and kind of, as a result, kind of sneak in a little attack on Emma, the director. But they completely ignore the fact that Max is the guy cheating on his wife. He is responsible for his actions. They feel necessary to attack one character, but not other characters. And this is an issue that happens a lot. This isn't the only example of this. That's an incredibly important distinction to call out here. You know, over the course of the film, more information about Max's relationship with his wife is kind of revealed, and Danielle wasn't aware of this relationship. So it's really shitty to shame the Danielle character when to Danielle, okay, maybe she's doing things that we as society don't find morally upstanding, but Max is the one that is lying to his wife and Danielle and risking hurting more people. And I guess my question would be like, is that reason for that because he eventually breaks things off with Danielle? But the only reason he does it is because of how things have escalated. What I really appreciated about the movie was that the film doesn't break the reality of the movie to punish Max. I'm sure there's going to be consequences to all this for Max. You get that sense. Like his wife is not an idiot. She clearly is a, it's left ambiguous to what degree she knows, but she knows something. You know, I feel like there are going to be consequences, but I did appreciate that the movie didn't necessarily include a scene where he gets punished in some way for his behavior. It stays real to the situation in the film, and I think the film should be praised for that. But as a result, I mean, there are going to be viewers who maybe brush over his behavior and don't really think about it or consider it. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. And I think another problem with it is we just don't spend a ton of time with him. We're with Danielle the entire time. We only see Max a, a little bit, so maybe he's just this background thing that an audience member or somebody viewing this, it's like, oh yeah, and there's Max. But he's not my focus at this point. What else would you like to say about Shiva Baby? I do want to acknowledge something in terms of the story or, or characters or characterization, I think it certainly could be said that 
the supporting characters, meaning the people that Danielle encounters throughout the Shiva, could be viewed as just stereotypes. And because we don't know a lot about them, they're not given the time, they're not the focus of the film. And because they're so specifically Jewish, they stand out as, as maybe like Jewish stereotypes. I just wanted to show that like, you know, so many mothers especially Jewish mothers don't get their due. They're, they're, they're so supportive, you know, beyond just being like in, in your business. Um, so I think that was the thing that I just think helped with in sort of leaning away from stereotypes. But otherwise I didn't know what to do when it came to that because stereotypes come from truth a lot of the time. And sometimes my parents or family members do things where I'm like, I can't write this in because it's, it'll be too stereotypical. It's not something that necessarily bothers me, but I can acknowledge that that could be an issue for somebody. How do you feel about that? I'd say I think that's fair. So I guess there's a couple things. Watching it on both occasions, I found myself focusing less on the fact that this is a Shiva and it's a Jewish family or Jewish families, and just more focused on the depiction of characters and who these people are. And I I think that's kind of what I started to focus on, even though maybe it does touch on some of those stereotypical elements. I still found myself saying, oh, I know somebody like that. These are people I can kind of connect to my personal experience. You know, one of the things that we like to do here on the Scene by Scene podcast is talk about some of the techniques and some of the filmmaking elements. Justin, I'm going to probably steal your thunder a little bit, and I'm going to start by talking about the cinematography, because I think that that really stood out to me. I have to say, like, it was some of best elements of this film, and the director of photography, Maria Roosh, thought she did an awesome job uh, shooting it. And you kind of touched on the fact that there was the short film. We'll maybe talk about the short in supplementals, but I think that watching this film and watching the short a DP can go a long way. Implying that the cinematography and the feature really kind of elevated the material. Yes. Beyond what was present in the short. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you can't really talk about the cinematography without also kind of just mentioning the the blocking, because I think they go hand in hand so heavily kind of influence each other. I mean, so much of the film is kind of either two scenarios. It's a close-up or extreme close-up on Danielle with out-of-focus characters in the background who we are listening to alongside Danielle. Or the other situation is shooting through groups of people to focus on Danielle. I would say most of the film is just showing how Danielle is so heavily influenced or focused on the other people at the Shiva or how they are overtaking the frame or always have some sort of influence over her. They're always just present. And I think it's it's absolutely perfect. There's little attentions to detail, too, that I think in any other film, somebody would say, oh, no, we can't do this. We can't have this in the shot because it would be distracting or whatever. There's a lot of moments where Danielle's in kind of a close-up or maybe even just a, a medium close-up. And there'll be hands or something else coming in and out of the frame. And I think that that's generally frowned upon as sloppy filmmaking. But it works, and I think that it really helps kind of ratchet up some of the tension 
Yeah, absolutely. And the one shot that is both in the feature and the short where Danielle is eating a bagel and in the background, her parents are talking with Max and it's revealed that he has a baby or whatever. And she's overhearing this conversation and she like chokes as she's eating. Didn't you guys have a baby this year? Yep. Oh my God. That was fantastic. Great news. (laughs) You have photos? Let's see. Uh, Sure, of course. Ah, look at that. Good on you, buddy. She's gorgeous. Then the decision to cover this, where we focus on her reaction to what's being said, all the other characters out of focus, and kind of just watching her, and we're learning of this information at the same time she is, and we're experiencing similar situation as her. I, I think it's just a very smart decision. I do think it works better in the feature. To go back to your point, I feel like it's just a a little bit better realized in the feature, but it's the same shot and certainly a good decision to just reuse that shot from the short because it does just work so well. And, you know, there's other examples of that, but that's the main one. Something that I appreciated, and this is kind of the case with the short versus the feature. So both versions kind of open in similar fashions. But one of the things that I really liked about the feature was that opening scene mostly plays out with just a fixed camera. And it's not until we're on the way to the Shiva really there's camera movement. And, you know, I I thought that that played really well for me where it's communicating, okay, something's different now. Absolutely. I mean, I have to admit that the opening shot of the short I really like, mainly because I'm a sucker for shooting through doorways with characters obscured. And there's certainly a practical reason to do it that way in the short. But you're right, the way it's blocked in the feature and it holds the first scene is one shot. It's one of these moments where we start with the focus on a ringing phone, ringing cell phone, and they're in the background having sex out of focus. There's no rack focusing. She gets up and she walks over and now she's in focus. Hi, it's me, it's mommy. Listen, are you coming to the funeral today or what? Because we gotta leave soon. You told me you were, but your dad just said you're not. There is eventually a a focus change when they're together. I have this brunch thing that I have to get ready for. Oh, with another client? Yes. Does he have hair? Yes. Does he have teeth? Yes. Well, how are you going to get through law school when you're busy screwing around with these guys? How are you going to get through law school when you're busy screwing around with these guys? <laughs> just the idea that you have the confidence to allow things to be out of focus and just hold. And it does introduce a contrast once she's out of that apartment and out of Max's sort of presence. I'm going to be honest with you, when that first film opened with that shot, I was like, okay, this is a great start. Because I just felt like this is a director who is in control and knows what they're doing. And this could go really well, or it could go really poorly from here. But in that moment, it was like this director 
is in control of this film in this moment. I think the only other thing I'll say about the the cinematography is, I guess the two shot isn't dead after all. I guess whoever said that was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go crazy. I really actually appreciated seeing the two shots in this movie. They're not used frequently, but... And here's the thing. Over the course of our few episodes we've done, I think we've both praised the two shot or we've praised the long take or we've praised just letting a camera sit there static. But there's something to be said for those techniques are just techniques. And as much as I like them and you may like them, they're not necessarily always the best way to film a scene. And so in this film, when we get these close-ups verging on like extreme close-ups, and it's just like cutting from close-up of one character close-up to another character close-up to another character, and it's just like alternating close-ups throughout a conversation. I mean, that's the type of thing I'm going against when I say, well, the two-shot is a better way to handle that situation. But this film does that for a reason, for a purpose. If you have a reason to film and edit a scene like that, then of course that's the proper way to do it. If you're trying to create a claustrophobic feel and a feel of the main character's shifting focus or all these things that are distracting her through a conversation, like obviously that's the way to do it. My point being is I certainly have expressed I have a particular taste and I favor a certain style over others, but when you have a reason to shoot a scene like that, obviously that works really well. What other technical elements would you like to touch on? I think there are two very interesting pan shots in this film, and I'm kind of curious what your your opinions of them are. The first one being Danielle walking down the street, and then off screen you hear her dad yell her name. Hi! Good to see you guys. Danielle! Danielle! Please don't yell! And then there's like the whip pan to her dad standing by the van, and she walks over there. Hi, Daddy. Hi, sweetie. Listen, we could have given you a ride. It's fine. Um, why did you bring the van? I think it's interesting. What are your thoughts on it? That one did not work for me quite as much. I thought it was an interesting decision, so yes, I'll agree with that element. That didn't feel like it fit the rest of the film and the look of the film. Mm -hmm. There's so much care um, that went into crafting the look of this and the cinematography that that one felt so out of place. Did you like it? I didn't dislike it, but it wasn't a moment that I felt like, oh, this is a a strong creative choice that makes a lot of sense to me. It honestly felt like this is one of those moments where felt like a horror film technique being utilized. Not that that technique is only present in horror films. And then actually, if I really was asked to name a horror film that does that, I really wouldn't be able to name it. I think it's just the combination of the music and that camera move in that way that just feels like this is leaning into horror film techniques. And it really doesn't throughout the rest of the film. So it does feel out of place. The only thing that really I can think of is it feels like we're being placed in that character's perspective where she's walking down the street and she's kind of in her own world. And then something, you know, sort of breaks that concentration she has, that sort of daze that she's in. And it's Danielle! Danielle! Instantly, her attention is shifted to this thing. So it's almost mirroring the head turn. 
as her focus shifts to this new thing. Does that make it a, a well-motivated camera move? I'm not saying it does. That's the only thing I can think of, though. I think that's a fair justification for it, but at the same time, I, it stood out. I keep kind of hinting at some of the supplementals, but the director of photography even said in an interview that she tries to lean a little bit more into the cinematography should serve the film. I think that's one of those moments where I don't think it did. The other one that I was referencing is the one where Danielle and Max are in the kitchen and the woman comes up and asks if there's another bathroom or where the bathroom is. And the pan follows the woman to reveal Max's wife, Kim, already standing there. I think it would be best if we um, ended this. <sighs> sure. Yeah. We probably should before your wife runs out of money. <coughs> Um, is there a second bathroom someone is taking forever in this one? Um, I think there's one upstairs. Oh, you gotta speak up. There's another bathroom upstairs? Forget it. I'll wait till I'm home. Oh, excuse me. I think we should get going soon. Which works as a reveal. I don't know if you have some greater insight on this. I, I think if I go back to the discussion we had of Mulholland Drive, and I've gone into some sort of conversation about like when you traditionally film entrances and exits of characters, but you choose to move a camera, cut to a character standing already in place, it gives this impression that they've been there a while. I think it works really well in this case because it's like, how much of that conversation did she hear? How long has she been there? So that's one that I liked and I thought it works really well. Do you have any thoughts or insight on that? Yeah, actually, I'll say that as much as the first one didn't work for me, this one absolutely worked for me. And I think it kind of adds to the discomfort that, you know, you kind of feel as the film goes on. And it is kind of that moment, oh my God, you know, what, what did Kim hear? It's just one of those things where I'm like, I can kind of relate to certain elements of that, not that specific situation to be clear just the oh that person's standing there do i need to go on damage control so i think it worked really well and it's just another moment where this discomfort is working it's just so well shot and i think that there's a great use of claustrophobia to ratchet up the tension i think that part of the tension really is fueled by the music that's being used that's yeah. your cue to that's my cue to what? To talk about the music. Talk about the music? Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you can talk about the music. No, no, it's a... Well, the music is probably one of the more interesting elements of the film. To anybody who's watching the film, I think the most surface level observation is going to be like, this music is not what I expected. The music does do a lot of heavy lifting of 
creating this atmosphere or creating this sense of anxiety that Danielle herself is feeling. Seligman mentioned that she wanted the music to resemble klezmer, klezmer music. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So there is a certain element of Jewish tradition, even within the music, where I think part of that horror and part of that anxiety is coming from a lot of the sort of traditions that are being sort of forced on specifically her at the Shiva. You know, it's not just like horror music. There's an element of this is specifically Judaism being forced on her. And that's where the horror comes from. That being said, it also does resemble something you would hear in a horror film. So yeah, what are your thoughts on music and, and whether, you know, that's one of those things that could either work really well or really backfire. Yeah. Do you think it, it works? I absolutely think it does. And I listened to the interview with Maria Rouge, And one of the things that she had touched on in that interview was she had watched a cut of the film before it was scored. And then she watched it clearly after an initial score was put in. Seeing, seeing it with the score um, totally changed the experience of it. You know, there were a number of rough cuts that... Uh, you know, didn't have the score in it, obviously, um, that were kind of more the initial rough cuts. And, and I think what the score does is enhance so much of the, the feeling of, of the horror and the anxiety. And it just really, it, it felt like, um, it felt like it really came into focus tonally once that piece was added in it's like ah yes like it really clicks into place with that um so that was really fun and her immediate thought and feedback was oh you know this the score made all the difference in regards to the build of tension and discomfort to me it's one of the most effective pieces of the film i think it's a spot on score the other thing i'll I'll touch on when it comes to music is just the wide variety of how that music's used lots of strings and i think strings are generally kind of that thing that really can work well to set up discomfort one moment in particular there's like a hum when danielle's in the bathroom and just kind of becomes this escalating and like louder hum that it just kind of almost becomes unbearable for yourself as well. I kind of touched on it before, and I kind of pointed to a little bit of the performance as far as Molly Gordon's character, Maya, and just some of the little things that she does in the scenes. And those are just kind of sprinkled throughout with all of the characters. Little looks, little glances, little like facial reactions and expressions. One, I touched on it before, I think it's part of that's on the actors, but another part of it is on the director to kind of give the actors a little bit of something and to kind of give them a little bit of that knowledge of this is how your character would react. I did listen to the audio commentary with Emma and with the actors, and they go into a little bit of detail about what how Emma works with the actors. The main thing being is that it's very collaborative and there is a lot of improvisation. But the thing that kind of stood out to me is like they kept referencing that this scene 
every single take we did this differently or something like each take had a different motivation or each take was this take i i was angry or this take i cried or so every single take they didn't go into detail about how many takes they did but every single take was different so you have all this variety when you first hear that you might think oh that's it's a director who doesn't know what they want but i think that this film proves that doing that you're going to get really interesting moments or reactions or just little pieces that you never could have planned for you never would have imagined what sort of play out that way by that's both on the director on giving that freedom and that permission to do a bunch of different things and experiment and it's also just the actors should be praised for that as well because i think they all just nailed it supplementals and when we say supplementals i think that we have a lot of different things that we can touch on here. If you don't mind, I'm going to go first because there's a few things that we've talked about over the course of the podcast that I've kind of referenced. So I listened to a podcast. The name of the podcast is Making It Women in Film. Uh, it was an episode that Maria Roosh was a uh, guest on. Maria was the director of photography. And it was really interesting, one, hearing about her process and how she got into film and filmmaking. But also, she talked about working with Emma to find the look of the film and how they watched a number of different films and the film that they liked and sort of settled on as far as basically the look that they wanted to try to not exactly replicate, sort of match to was Black Swan. So Justin, I guess I'm going to ask the question, did you get any Black Swan out of this from like a visual standpoint? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry if this was leading somewhere and I, I screwed it up. I can't say I remember Black Swan well enough to say. Part of the reason and motivation for that was Natalie Portman's character in Black Swan. It really does kind of follow her and it's it's kind of positioned as like how they shot her and like how she kind of descends into some of the madness. And I do see after listening to the podcast and thinking about certain scenes and certain elements, the big thing where Danielle hits the table and knocks everything over. Okay, let me take can you call the car? Yeah, I can do that. Honestly, I can, I can, can you call the car? Yeah, but I can do both. I just think you call the car first. I can do both. I can the I'd like you to call the car. Hi, She's a babysitter. Remember? What is the matter with you? Honestly. You know, as everything kind of builds towards that, okay, I can kind of see the parallels. We talked a lot about um, kind of how to build the experience of her perspective over the course of the film and, and how to uh, you know, we, we didn't want it to be one note. So we're constantly tight, for example, but, but how could we increase the tension as we go on? And so that you understand how she could get to the, this breaking point. And so that you understand like that it feels like the place is crashing down around her and suffocating her. Um, so, so Black Swan was, was really a helpful reference for that. It's a great listen. It's only about an hour. I also kind of wanted to touch on a few other takeaways from that. Justin, you talked about the blocking of the film. I don't know if you caught this or if this was discussed in any of the material you found, but Maria talked about the challenges of the shoot and how they would need to 
because of actors' schedules, they would only be able to shoot part of a scene. So they would basically, as the scene would play out, they wouldn't have access to everybody that needed to be in the scene. So they would only shoot part of the scene. If they would get so far into a scene, they would have to cut. Later on, they'd have to pick up when everybody was back and available. So clearly this... This is probably not an ideal way of making a film, which to me makes what the end result was that much better, knowing that they worked with that hurdle. What they did to combat this from a director, actor, cinematographer standpoint is they would use Legos to actually block the scene. So that way they would have a sense of, here's how this is going to play out. From a lighting perspective, the gaffer would take notes of the lighting setup. They would use that as a reference for when all the actors were present and when they could complete the scene. We really lucked out with an incredible cast, but kind of the, the flip side of having such kind of seasoned actors was we were a little at the whim of what their schedule was. And so I think we only had two days with the entire cast. Um, and so a lot of times we would shoot uh, a part of one scene where we would see Molly Gordon, for example, um, and then we'd have to shoot the rest of the scene on a different day when we had the other characters there. Um, so the, a challenge and what we what what we did was uh, use a Lego set that Emma created that was a kind of a representation of the house, and we used that to really specifically block out exactly where each person was at every point in the movie as we were shot listings. I told you it's kind of an awesome listen. There's some other stuff that Maria talks about, and she actually highlights some of the difficulties and challenges with going to school for cinematography and how it's kind of treated as a technical element versus some of the creative stuff. So great listen. Highly recommend. Even if you didn't love Shiva Baby, I still recommend listening to Maria talk about it. I will check it out. I have the Blu-ray, the Utopia and their partnership with Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, which has a 30-minute Q&A with Emma. There's also a audio commentary with Emma and the cast. Honestly, the biggest takeaway from this is just how close they've all become and how good of friends they are. I think the atmosphere of the entire track is just like a bunch of friends hanging out, <laughs> talking about experiences on the film. But on there, they Emma had mentioned that they had no script supervisor on the shoot. And so there was moments of extreme moments of continuity issues and the editor Hannah Park had, had just kind of mentioned like the continuity was like all over the place I think the scene in which they brought this up was Danielle comes out of the bathroom and the guy comes up and it's like is there a window or a vent or something in there sorry I didn't mean to startle you but is there an open window or a fan inside great thank you and he goes into the bathroom it's 
it's her dad. It's Emma's dad playing that character. And then Danielle walks out. And then a couple seconds later, you see the guy who just went into the bathroom walk through the background. So they're talking about how there's major issues. This is something that I think just is a nightmare when you're working in a small location and you have so many extras that it's impossible to keep track of this kind of stuff. And they were just talking about on top of that, they had no script supervisor to keep an eye on continuity. And so these were things that just occurred as someone viewing the movie. None of that matters. None of it stands out. I don't necessarily think continuity issues very rarely are they ever like really a problem when the film is working as well as this film is working. If I could kind of jump in on that one too. Yeah. Every film has some sort of continuity error. But I'd also say that the only time that it's really noticeable or that it really stands out is if you're not telling an interesting story or, you know, you're just kind of checked out from a film. Yeah, I've watched this film twice now and I didn't catch the continuity errors because I didn't care about those. Absolutely. Throughout the film, there would be moments where Emma was like, this was the day that you guys came up to me and said, oh, we have this whole new scene, two of the actors. And this led into a larger discussion of improv on the film and how there's moments of where the actors are just improving dialogue. But there was also moments where the actors would show up on set and be like, hey, we, we came up with this idea for this whole new scene, this idea that wasn't even in the script. And so how that stuff would sort of make its way into the film. You get a sense that there is a level of discovering the film and, and and inviting new ideas into the film, which is something that I like to try to do whenever I make a film. And then the last thing I want to mention is there was a scene in which Maya and Danielle were interacting and Rachel playing Danielle made a decision to cry. And she started crying during their scene together. And Emma gave the direction. I think this is great, but you can't cry in this scene because you have to cry in the next scene. And the next scene being when she knocks over all the Daddy, stuff. stop. Come on. What are you doing? What's going on, sweetie? Bubble, bubble. Talk to me. I can't. Talk to me. Talk to me. You can't what? I can't. Why this is interesting to me is because it proves that as a director, especially if you're filming this stuff out of sequence, is you have to be aware of your character's arc, your character's journey. And that crying moment is an important moment in the film. And if you have the character crying at an earlier moment, the impact of her breaking down in that later moment isn't going to be as strong. I feel like it's just another example of... Emma being a very smart director and knowing exactly what film she's making and all the actors expressed that they really appreciated how sort of tactful she was about handling the situation as well. There's some interesting moments in there that are a good listen if you're interested in how actors and directors interact and communicate. And Emma did an interview and she was asked specifically to respond to controversy about Rachel Sennett, from everybody's understanding, is not bisexual and not Jewish. And is that appropriate? Because people have problems with that. And so I don't want to get into it too much, 
But Emma was like, well, I think it's inappropriate to assume things about people's sexuality. This is a business just as much as anything else. I shouldn't ask her what her sexuality is before we hire her. But also this idea that like a non-Jewish person can play a Jewish person is inappropriate somehow. Like that seems a bit ridiculous. They both felt that way. I think the conversation is extremely important. Um, for me, it's a, it's a little less black and white that everyone has to be Jewish. I think intent is really important like going out with with an intent to make it authentic um whether you end up achieving every character every other character being played by a jewish person is is a different story but sometimes i feel like i watch things and i don't feel like there was intent behind trying to even find a jewish cast i think it's a conversation worth having i think it's a discussion that is relevant to representation in films and and all that I did want to just read a quote. This is a quote from Emma Seligman about the inclusion of sex in her films and in Shiva Baby. And this is from an interview with Christina Schultz at Femme Film Fans. She says, women decode sexual messages from a young age, from eight years old to 22 years old. They have to process what sex means, what it can do for them, what it should do for them, and what they're supposed to do for it. Technology, for example, with porn and dating sites, has made the sexual messaging more confusing, and I'm interested in how women figure it out. I see sex in my films as a huge question mark. It's confusing, intriguing, exciting, and even sad. I think it feels that way for a lot of people. So I would never say women should leverage sex or that being sex worker is bad. I don't attach that kind of message to it. Sex is just confusing. I found it interesting because you kind of see that in Shiva Baby. And also because there was some discussion about should you really care about a character who's doing this and doing this not out of necessity because she doesn't need the money necessarily, but for some other reason. And I think her exploring these ideas is interesting and she explores them in a film that is so much more than just that, which I loved. You have anything else, Joe? I think we'd be doing a disservice. We kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but the feature is based off of a short film. The short film, as of this recording, was available. I, I found it on Vimeo. Justin, did you also find it on Vimeo? Yeah, Vimeo. And I watched it from NYU's Tish account. Yes. I guess like real quick, we can just kind of touch on the short. I think we both kind of acknowledge that the feature is maybe a little bit better, more well-crafted, technically speaking. I think the short is nice looking. I don't know if there's as a distinct vision visually as there is when you get to the feature, but I mean, it's nice looking. I, you know, the end of the film when the baby's wailing and we kind of just like focus on her face, close up of her reacting to this piercing cry, I think is interesting. <laughs> And that kind of makes its way into the feature. And it's, I think, improved a little bit in the feature. But the biggest thing for me is I saw some reviews, common theme in this episode, I guess, that were saying that the film feels like a short extended. And I don't feel that way. And having seen the short, the short feels a bit lifeless, actually, I think. All of the detail, all of the the little moments between characters is kind of just not there. 
and it doesn't feel like a full film. And part of that may be that she saw, she immediately saw that this was something bigger. And this was a way to kind of get started with this story. And, and I think that totally makes sense. But the biggest thing that stands out is like Danielle is less dysfunctional, I guess, for lack of a better word. And as a result, it's so much less interesting. There's none of those really interesting character interactions, even though a lot of the scenes that are in the short are in the feature in some way. What are your thoughts on it? I think that the short is a very good jumping off point. And for anybody listening to us that's also filmmakers, sometimes shorts can be a good like jumping off point for that vehicle to make your feature. But I will say it's a very good short film. I didn't quite feel the connection with the Danielle character in the short the way I did with the feature. I think having the Maya relationship and having that character to play off of worked really well. And also just the dynamic between Max and Danielle isn't quite there either. The opening scene, we we already touched on this, but just the way they interact with each other in that opening scene in the feature just tells you so much about their relationship. And in the short, they get separate phone calls and then they're like, okay, see ya. Uh, what? Is that my phone? Uh, oh no, it's mine. What time is it? It's like 11. Shit. Hello? Yeah, okay. So, what's up? Hi, it's me, it's mommy. I need you to call me back, okay? Because your father was supposed to help me, but he is at the gym. And that's kind of it. And if I could kind of jump in on that a little bit too, and maybe I misinterpreted the short. I felt like the way that the Max character played it in the short felt a little bit more longing when she left versus the way that the Max character kind of in the feature played it. Now, maybe I'm misinterpreting that. Did you get any sense of that? Um, No, I really didn't. But it is a completely different character. I think it's worth noting that Rachel Sennett is pretty much the only actor in both versions well so i did basically every student film project that existed i was like (laughs) i was not i don't know what was let me just say theater school is um you're literally rolling around on the ground eating a rock reciting a poem and I was like I actually want to be in like a movie um (laughs) I was doing all of the student films and then Emma saw me in a couple other projects and reached out to me to audition and I like met her in the basement of the dorm and like my like (laughs) audition jeans um and um yeah it just like I felt like I could instantly tell like the sides, the script. Emma just is such an amazing director and writer. And she created a really nuanced female character that is like messy and doesn't always make like every decision she makes. You're not like, "Eh," you're kind of like, don't do that. But you care about her. And I feel like that is so special and and that was just like on the short and that's like in seven minutes and then as a director she's so like grounded calm knows how to talk to actors and like really connects with you 
Um, and then we just like became friends. Even her performance is just, it's just played slightly different. I think it's a good thing that it's not the same because I think that the strides that they made from the short to the feature are just astronomical, honestly. This is my taste. There's something about the small scale film, a focus on characters interacting with each other in potentially uncomfortable situations. Just It just works for me. Is there anything from the film and the supplemental material and, and the whole experience of preparing and talking about this film that stands out to you as like a takeaway? And is this a film you would recommend this is one where i find myself wanting to kind of immerse myself more into emma's process and look into more of how she made it you know i listen to the the one podcast you have another one that you listen to i think that there's a lot that you can learn and a lot that you can kind of glean as a filmmaker as whether you're actually making films or just kind of like really interested in the process i think that there's a lot there that you can learn and take away from i absolutely recommend the film i will say i absolutely recommend it but i know that i think more people than not are probably going to dislike it or not like it as much as you or i do but i think it's one of those films that somebody needs to experience at least once. And I think that people need to go into it with kind of that understanding of who these characters are, who these people are, and that there's likely some personal elements to this. So you kind of touched on it. Clearly, you were a big fan of this one. Who would you recommend it to? That's tough. I would recommend it to everyone, I guess. Even though, I, like you said, I acknowledge most people will not like this. In the past, I've said I'd recommend this to other filmmakers or other people who are getting just getting started with filmmaking. I think this one especially, I, a lot of people who are getting into filmmaking, they, they watch whatever big film, the films they've fallen in love with, and these are films that may have a $100 million budget, and they have all of these resources and that is their the thing that they are taking inspiration from that may be the thing that they're aspiring to create but it's just not realistic and this is one of these where it's you know for me and you two hundred thousand dollars is still a massive budget i mean we're not we're not making films at that level but if you are studying this film and you are aspiring to make something on this kind of level I think that's more realistic to look at this and, and see how this film works and how this film's constructed. So in that way, I recommend it to filmmakers, as always. I think it's a really funny and enjoyable film, so I would recommend it to everyone and hope for the best, I guess. <laughs> that's a great way to put it, hope for the best. Spend time developing your own taste. And um, I think, I think, uh, a lot of young people spend too much time thinking about what other people want to see or what kind of looks professional or things like that. But I, um, I was definitely embarrassed to like comedies and like uh, uh, sci-fi and romantic comedies at, when I was in film school. Um, and I think that it took me a while to see my taste as um, a part of why people hire me. Um, and I think, yeah, just finding time to kind of like hone your own taste and perspective 
is valuable time spent uh, because you're being hired for the specificity of you, I think, not just um, not just for being a catch-all artist. And I've been so amazed to see how festivals and audiences and press um, and pretty much anyone involved or interested in film have adapted to the virtual landscape. I totally thought the pandemic was gonna happen and everyone was just gonna be all about Netflix and that you know indie film would be sort of effed over. But I actually think indie film has thrived so much more um, in this landscape. Shiva Baby was my pick. So that means our next episode will be your selection. Do you want to tell us what you have selected for our next episode? I kind of felt like it would be good going from one feature debut to another. And I'm going to go with 2022's After Sun from Charlotte Wells. I don't think that you've seen this one. I have not. I did see this one already, but I'm really looking forward to our discussion surrounding it and really getting your thoughts on this one. This is one that I've heard a lot of good things about. Awesome. Well, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash Lefebvre. 83. Thank you for listening to our discussion about Shiva Baby. Join us back here in two weeks for Charlotte Wells' After Sun. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know what? No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.